Last week on the Sonic Truth Dynasty podcast. These sucker draft analysts get excited about watching players in practice posting vines of fucking practice. Such a circle jerk exercise. And this is how you lose in Dynasty, where you trade valuable assets of the present for diminished value assets in the future. That's the best possible formula for losing in Dynasty League football. And we were ready to have anal. We're all lubed up. And then you brought Zach Zenner into the bedroom. And now it's not going to happen. I don't know what to say. I apologize for bringing him up. But Zach Zenner is one of the most productive players. To Are come you out of doubling a down on position. Zach Zenner? And I love Juju Smith-Schuster, but I'm not taking him over Mike Williams. You fucking insane. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Sonic Truth Dynasty Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Liss. You can find me on Twitter at an outraged Jew. And with me, as always, Mr. Matt Kelly. You can find him on Twitter at fantasy underscore mansion. Listen, Matt, I got to be honest with you. I'm getting text messages and DMs out the hoo-ha. I can't keep them straight. I'm getting trade offers. Left and right, you look like you want to say something. Hoo-ha? You know, I try to be the one who... Hoo-ha? What the hell's a hoo-ha? I don't know, man. It's something my mom used to say, I think, when she didn't want to say something that was offensive. She was talking about her vagina with her son? Yeah, but she was saying hoo-ha, so it was like she wasn't talking about it with her son. Wow. Things are starting to make a lot more sense on the show. This went super sideways, but the, the point is, man, I'm thinking about just bailing on these leagues altogether because, honestly, I just can't keep this stuff straight anymore. Fortunately, I have a solution for you. I just found this app. It's called Local, L-O-K-L. Go to your app store on your phone, search L-O-K-L, and download it. You know how I found out about it? How? The parents at my school, my daughter's school, they use this app to organize activities, chaperoning field trips, so forth. This is how we interact. It's one of these group chat tools, kind of like Slack. I've used Slack at work. So if you use Slack at work and you see how these group chat apps can make your life easier, well, local is the informal version of Slack. And from what I've seen using it you know, just in the last couple months, it's incredible. It just takes a few seconds to set up a group so you don't need email addresses. You just type in a phone number and that's it. I mean, I've never seen an app that's this easy to set up. And it's extremely easy for organizers to set up groups because you don't need to exchange email addresses. You just have a code. You give out the code, and it's like a fantasy league. That's the first thing that I thought of. I was like, you're just giving out a code. I join the group. I'm in the group. That's like inviting people to join a private fantasy league. And then it hit me. This app is great for parents at schools to stay organized, but it's even better for fantasy football communities, particularly Dynasty communities where you have a lot of banter throughout the season. Most dynasty communities have been around a long time. The leagues have been around 10 plus years in some cases. The owners know each other very well. There's a lot of debate that goes on about rules and about trades. This can all be done on the local app. And then you can also set up a one-on-one -on -one channel at any time with any member of the group. 
to have trade talks. So it's ideal. I'm going to ask everyone that's in all my leagues to get the L-O-K-L app, and I think it'll change your life. I think this is a game changer, Nate. That sounds like the solution to all my problems, Matt, because doing it over the phone and getting Twitter messages and Facebook messages and text messages and emails, it's too many different formats to try and put it all together. So this sounds like a nice way to put it all in one spot. I'm going only local from now on. Anyone wants to DM me a trade offer or email me? No, no. Shut them all down and... Funnel them all into local, and then you can actually be in more leagues and keep your sanity. Now, I love it. I also feel like I was losing my sanity this whole week, and I feel relieved to talk to you tonight because I no longer have this responsibility that's been hanging over me, this responsibility that my wife and I together have to finish this godforsaken OJ Made in America documentary. We finally... After eight hours and many, many nights, finished this goddamn documentary. <laughs> eight hours, Nate. It's too much. I, it would have been great as a four-hour documentary. Even then, I would have questioned it. But eight hours, I don't know. The reason I got sucked into it is because it started with OJ's early life, OJ at USC. And USC OJ was very interesting to me. It was football. So they got me hooked with football, and then the next thing I know, I'm passed out on the couch, drool coming off my face, 1.30 in the morning, I'm waking up, wondering, what happened, where am I? Oh, that's right, I fell asleep during another OJ Made in America episode. My wife also sound asleep next to me. I would make it through half an episode before falling asleep, my wife would make it through 15 minutes before falling asleep, but we finally made it through... The O.J. trial, though, it was very much like a sporting event. That struck me because the O.J. trial was a spectacle, much like a football game is a spectacle. And the O.J. Simpson trial closely paralleled a sporting event because you had these passionate spectators with intense rooting interests on both sides. There was no in-between with O.J. Simpson. You either loved him and you wanted him to get off because he was a symbol, or you hated him, you thought he was a murderer, and you wanted him to go to jail for life. I mean, there was not a lot of middle ground. And I'm also not a big second guesser. I come on here, and I lament the second guessing that goes on, especially in sports. Always ready to jump in with the hindsight bias. You know hindsight bias very well, Nate. You specialize in hindsight bias. Oh, my God. A well-delivered shot to the gut. (laughs) So I'm not... I try to be objective. I try to identify the hindsight bias as it's happening and scrub it from my personality. But not in this case. (laughs) I am happy to let the hindsight bias flow as I analyze the moves of one Gil Garcetti, the lead prosecutor in the people against O.J. Simpson, because he blew it. (laughs) Gil Garcetti blew it. (laughs) We always want to find fault. Remember Pete Carroll? He blew it because he didn't call a run play on the one-yard line. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Don't blame Russell Wilson. You blame Pete Carroll. You need to find someone to blame. Well, in the O.J. Simpson case, I can tell you who to blame. Gil Garcetti. And his failure was driven by hubris. So in many ways, Gil Garcetti was like an NFL coach who loses the game because he's overconfident. And you can see why he would have been overconfident. He had a preponderance of evidence. Just everything you could possibly want to find a defendant guilty. Motive. 
No verifiable alibi. Matching footprints. Matching gloves at both the crime scene and the defendant's home. Matching blood samples. I mean, what else do you want? This was like a Christmas list of evidence to put a guy in jail with. So you could see why Gil Garcetti was so arrogant. Because it went beyond confidence. It wasn't just confidence. Yes, of course he was confident. He was arrogant. Because that's the only way to lose a case like that. Because if you go into a case like that with a humble approach, you're going to win. If you're always thinking worst case scenario, always expecting to lose, you're going to approach it from a completely different disposition, completely different sensibilities, attacking the case. Because you have to actually try hard. You have to try extremely hard to lose a case like that. But that's exactly what Gilgar said he did. It's like he was trying to lose. You have to. You have to try to lose a case like that. Because they had everything. I'm not even a lawyer. And I could have won that case. <laughs> I would have won that trial. Absolutely. I'm Gil Garcetti. I'm the lead prosecutor. We're winning that trial. I'm not even a lawyer. That's how easy it was. But I know how they lost because Gil Garcetti knew too much. He's seen so many cases where the defendant was convicted with much less evidence. So he was thinking, we got this guy. We don't need to have a trial near Brentwood in Santa Monica. Fuck it. We're going downtown with this. Mark Furman's a racist? Put him on the stand. Fuck it. Right? You can see him. You can see him. He's like, eh, we got this. Mark Furman. Called to the stand. Oh, we know he's a racist. It's fine. We got this. We all know that you can't wear fitted leather gloves over latex gloves. You can't even put them on. They won't fit. No one would think that that would fit. Anyone that wears fitted driving gloves, and I do, I wear fitted leather driving gloves because that's, I don't let my bare hands touch a cold steering wheel. Never. Oh my God. Never. Ever. Okay. Ever. So I know fitted leather gloves, and they were extra large. And I know fitted leather gloves that you would get at a Neiman Marcus don't come in sizes larger than extra large. So of course those were his gloves. But you can't ask him to try on the gloves over latex gloves. Of course they're not going to fit. But these prosecutors asked OJ to try the gloves on. What are they doing? See, when this trial was happening, I wasn't listening to every minute of the trial. I just assumed that it was the defense that brought up OJ to try on the gloves. I didn't know it was the prosecution that asked him to put them on. I mean, that was the dumbfounding moment of the entire trial. Like, what are you doing? They were delusional because they had so much evidence. They just, whatever. It's like someone that wins the lottery. They're just spending. They're just giving away $20 bills. Anyone that walks up to them. Oh, we got plenty of evidence. It's a devil-may-care attitude. You can't have a devil-may-care attitude with those stakes. And it did remind me of a coach who's up big in the second half. We've seen a game like that where a team was up big in the second half and then a delusional coach is calling plays like he can't lose. Have we seen that before recently, Nate? I do vaguely remember one game pretty recently. Last couple weeks, maybe. Yeah, something like that. Team was up big, couldn't lose, found a way to lose. Yeah, Gil Garcetti is the Kyle Shanahan of prosecutors. <laughs> and I'm telling you all this so you don't have to spend eight hours of your life watching this godforsaken movie. A movie that should have been four hours. So I'll give you the one interesting nugget that I gleaned from the show. There was one. There was one interesting nugget where I sat up in my chair and I said, oh, that's interesting. Happened one time. And it was a counterfactual regarding Mark Furman. And you know how I love counterfactuals. It's my favorite logic-based 
debate tactic, the counterfactual. For this not to be true, then these things must be true. That's how we know that Mark Furman could not have planted the glove. That was the crux of the reasonable doubt in the O.J. Simpson trial, was that Mark Furman could have planted the glove. He could not have planted the glove, and here's why. Because in order for Mark Furman to plant the glove and not risk going to jail himself, he would have had to have known with definitive certainty that O.J. Simpson did not have a verifiable alibi the night of the murder. And without that confidence, essentially a complete understanding of the events of that night, it would have been suicidal to plant a glove where he did when he did. Are you there, Nate? Are you there? Are you listening to the show? I am. I don't know what you want me to say to this. Do you have any thoughts? The O.J. Simpson trial, do you remember it? Anything you can add? I vaguely... It was a pretty important event in the history of the United States. Race relations in this country. Well, that's... Sports and society collide. That's a little big. That's a little big. It's building it up a bit much. I will say this, though. Anything for us, Nate? Yeah, I appreciate that I don't have to watch it because I don't want to fall asleep. I fall asleep watching Marvel movies. Those are supposed to keep you awake. So I appreciate that I will no longer have to waste my time because I got the run of the film from you. You do not have to watch this movie now. I gave you the most interesting nugget. I summarized the whole thing. (laughs) Just know that I would have won that trial. I like how you weave Kyle Shanahan into it. That was that was impressive. Gilgar said he's the Kyle Shanahan of prosecutors, and Kyle Shanahan's the Gilgar Setti of offensive coordinators. Kyle Shanahan just walked right into a starting head coaching job too. Blew it. New job. Oh, I'm sure Gilgar said he got promoted after that somehow, some way. <laughs> right. I'm right. sure. That's the parallel. It's the only way. Tank job. Gilgar said he listens to the UTH podcast. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I know Doug Doug Veach doesn't. He was throwing it under the bus the other day. <laughs> There's a bit enough uff attacks in our first four episodes. No, Gilgar said he knows how to tank. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Uh, All right, Matt, do you want to get into some wide receivers that we have not touched on yet? Number one. Yeah, I think there were a number of wide receivers that we could have talked about in the last show. We just ran out of time. And I think people want more sex. They want seconds. So I think we should give them (laughs) seconds. I think we should give them seconds. I think people deserve seconds. Can we call it part do? Would that be a, a fair pun intended? What do you call the second sex? Not sloppy seconds. Well, we, yeah, that'd be like if somebody else was already there. Uh, so there, so it's not sloppy seconds. Whatever this is, when we talk about the other wide receivers that are not Corey Davis and not Juju Smith-Schuster and not Taewon Taylor, the other guys, the guys who would draft in the third and fourth round, we neglected to talk about those wide receivers, and I believe we should talk about those wide receivers today. Let's have some sloppy seconds. We were going to break this topic down, and a couple of these guys here we feel like might be the most likely to be overrated in this class. Is that not true? Once you get past the guys we like, because we do like John Ross. John Ross may be overdrafted in the NFL. He may go in the first round just like Philip Dorsett two years ago, like Will Fuller last year. That's John Ross this year. He doesn't deserve to be a first-round pick in the NFL, but I do think he is one of the better prospects in this class. He's certainly top 10. I think you have him in your top five. But there are some other prospects that are on the list of top 10 wide receivers in a lot of sports media sites that I simply don't understand what they're doing there. 
Well, let's lead off with the first one then, Matt. So we've got Curtis Samuel, wide receiver slash running back out of Ohio State. That's all you need to say. Can that's all? Can we just end that? Just stop right that, that, uh, that, there. That, wide receiver slash running back. When I hear wide receiver slash running back, do you know who I think of? Who? You know what it brings to mind when I do word association? Wide receiver slash running back. Dexter McCluster. Mm. Mm. You want Dexter McCluster? Go get Curtis Samuel. It's a gadget player. Clearly, you can't have any conviction about Curtis Samuel as either a wide receiver or a running back, particularly a wide receiver. If you're a wide receiver who's playing half his snaps at the running back position, then you're not getting the proper development at the wide receiver position. You're diminishing your own capabilities by taking snaps at running back. That's one of Curtis Samuel's problems. If he spent all his time at wide receiver, I'd probably be more excited about him. But he didn't. And as we've seen in the NFL, players make the transition from wide receiver to running back every year. This past year, Ty Montgomery, perfect example. C.J. Procise. This year, it's going to be Curtis Samuel. You very rarely see a player who played significant amount of running back at the college level convert to a full-time receiver. That's much more rare. So this is where we're going to slightly disagree. I don't disagree with your take about the rarity of it, but I disagree with a take if there's a thought that there may be no success for him. The one thing about Curtis Samuel, when you watch him, it seems at least apparent to me that Curtis Samuel should be a wide receiver and not a running back. Couple reasons. One, as a receiver, he looks very natural as a route runner. He has natural hands. He knows how to set up defenders. So that's what you like to see. As a running back, though, I often saw him being used in the read option and in offensive sets like that, where in the NFL, he's going to have to go to a particular offense to be successful. And I just don't know that he's dynamic enough solely as a running back for one team to say, yeah, we'll use him as a running back when he has so much value as a receiver. Now, what's the potential? floor for Curtis Samuel, total bust out of the league. What do I think the potential upside is? Well, when I look at his college production and I go back to a receiver that you may have heard of before, Randall Cobb coming out of Kentucky, I see pretty parallel production here. I see similar rushing statistics, similar receiving statistics their last year coming out of college and very similar size. And when you watch them on the field, you see that same level of of shift and decision-making and just the nuance that each guy has. So when I think about Curtis Samuel, I, I think of what team could he go to that could turn him into a special player. And I've heard a couple other podcasts dropping teams, but an interesting one would be a team that already has sort of that ingrained, you know, first and second down runner, like perhaps San Francisco, who has Carlos Hyde in the front, just got Kyle Shanahan, had that Tevin Coleman backfield, had that Devonta Freeman backfield. Now here's a place, a team that needs receivers. You slide a guy like Curtis Samuel in, who's dynamic, and all of a sudden you've got something to work with. Okay, he is an upgrade over Sean Drone. I will give you that. Even a gimmick player could be seen as an upgrade over Sean Drone. Now speaking of gimmick players, D.D. Westbrook. And D.D. Westbrook wasn't splitting touches across positions last year, full-time receiver. And his stats were impressive. Wow. Over 1,500 yards, 17 touchdowns. It's only 175 pounds. That's exciting. But I keep going back to the fact that he's only 175 pounds, and there are just very few, precious few wide receivers in the NFL under 180 pounds 
that are fantasy viable year to year. There's only so many Deshaun Jacksons. Most of them do not become Deshaun Jackson. So is D.D. Westbrook Deshaun Jackson? Probably not. So why am I excited about him? I don't know. He's also old. Came from Juco. Then he had two years at Oklahoma. Late breakout age, 22.8. Fifth percentile breakout age. So we've seen this story before. Martavis Bryant, late breakout age. Explosive player. Incredible college yards per reception, but a late breakout age. Where was Martavis Bryant last year? Didn't see him. Where was Kevin White last year? The least efficient wide receiver in the league. Another Juco transfer that flashed in his final season at West Virginia. So I do not trust the players that flash in their final season at age 23. Yep. That's exactly right. And the problem with D.D. Westbrook is 100% his size. And then the next biggest issue is... Well, it's I not 100% cut the- his size. I just got done saying that it's partially his size and partially his late breakout age. Okay, you cut me off right when I was about to correct my pie here. I shouldn't have said the pie was 100%. I should have divvied it up a little more. I just got so trigger happy, Matt. I apologize. The thing is, yes, you got the late breakout, but you also have the transfer from two years at a JUCO. So that's a problem too. But I just want to say, in his defense... If you're looking at his junior year at college when he only had 46 receptions, we got to remember that that was his first year in D1, and he was also playing across from Sterling Shepard, a future second-round pick who played well in his first year in the NFL. So that's definitely a factor. But like you said, if D.D. Westbrook's going to check in at 175, 180, 185, he has to be a burner. He has to be a 4-3 guy or 4-4 blazing fast because he's just not going to last as anything more than a deep threat. Because when I watch him, I definitely don't see Deshaun Jackson. I see see a J.J. Nelson with less nuance to his routes. You know, and take it for what it is. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing where you value J.J. Nelson, but I agree with you. If I'm a dynasty player, I'm going to let the NFL really decide how much I care about D.D. Westbrook. I need to see where he gets drafted. I would rather have Tyreek Hill over J.J. Nelson. I don't even like Tyreek Hill because they're both gadget players. They're too small and or do not have that age-adjusted production at the college level to be trusted to be consistent producers at the NFL level. But here's what's going to happen. Look into my crystal ball. Prescient moment on the Sonic Truth podcast. Didi Westbrook is absolutely going to blaze at the combine. He's going to run a 4-3-2, and he's going to get drafted in the second round, and his draft stock's going to rise. And Dynasty League enthusiasts will be drafting him ahead of Juju Smith-Schuster. And that is when we strike! Oh, my God. First person with D.D. Westbrook ranked higher than Juju Smith on Twitter. I'm burning their account to the ground. You this haven't is a call seen in. the draft happen. Wait for the draft. We have the combines going to happen, and then you'll see Juju Smith-Schuster fall because he doesn't test well. D.D. Westbrook's going to rise. Then the draft's going to happen. Westbrook will get drafted before Smith-Schuster, and then you'll start to see the rookie drafts adjust accordingly, and those owners adjusting will be wrong, just like if anyone falls from Malachi Dupree. People that I know personally are going to hate hearing Malachi Dupree's name come up amongst the guys in this list. Uh, Malachi Dupree is another one of those guys where I don't want to make an excuse for him, but before I get into sort of what I've seen in him, I just want to talk about his college production. Never more than 43 receptions in any year, which is not pretty on paper, I realize. 22 
yards per reception as a freshman and then 16 and 14. It dipped a little. But the real thing about LSU is that, number one, Malachi has had other quality receivers on the side of him. And also, LSU hasn't had a viable quarterback since Zach Mettenberger back in 2013. So, so to put it all on Malachi Dupree seems a little unfair. And, and this is also a team that had Leonard Fournette, Darius Geist, some premier running backs that you would have no choice but to just give them the ball 20 times a game because you're going to win games that way. But when I watch Malachi Dupree, obviously long strider, smooth runner for his frame. He runs clean routes, does a good job concealing his route until he reaches his break, plays inside, plays outside, tracks the ball well. Good jumper and a great downfield blocker. The thing with Malachi Dupree is I can't tell exactly what to get from his athleticism. I don't know whether he's a great athlete or a good athlete, and that's why I need to see the combine. Malachi Dupree has the ability to go higher in this draft than I think people expect. He could be a third-round pick. Oh, my God. If his combine works out the way people hope it does. But I think Malachi Dupree is shaping up more as a fourth-round or fifth-round pick. And I have some friends that I talk to on Twitter all the time that I really respect that have Malachi Dupree in their top five. And <laughs> <laughs> they shall remain <laughs> anonymous. Malachi <laughs> 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 Uh. <laughs> what? You need some water? <laughs> Malachi Dupree is just the baseline guy. His BMI is the absolute baseline. He's Tajay Sharp, and Tajay Sharp wasn't even good last year. And in terms of production, we have College Dominator, thankfully. Without the College Dominator, Malachi Dupree would be fucked. <laughs> But luckily, we have College Dominator, which compares Malachi Dupree's receiving yards and receiving touchdowns to the other receivers in that passing game. So it factors out quarterback play. LSU is one of the least prolific offenses in college football. So the Dominator rating on Malachi Dupree was about average, 32.3%, 57th percentile, and his college yards per reception, 15.3, 60th percentile the last couple of years. So he looks like an above-average producer, and he's one of the younger wide receivers in this class. That's the one thing about this class that I, that's noteworthy. A lot of older prospects in this class. So when you see Juju Smith-Schuster and you see Malachi Dupree, you perk up because you see a young player. It's very few of these young wide receivers. Malachi Dupree broke out at age 18.9, 91st percentile. So as a young sophomore, he was producing at the breakout threshold. But that's all he's been doing is producing at the breakout threshold. He hasn't done anything special. Three touchdowns? 14.5 yards per reception last season? If you're not going to get huge volume, you got to show me something, Malachi. you got to score some touchdowns. you got to break some long runs after the catch. I know you're asking him to show you something, Matt, but let's not forget that this year, LSU, maybe we could put like a drum roll sound effect in here. Their quarterbacks combined to throw 12 total passing touchdowns in 2016. So nobody in this offense caught any touchdowns. I mean, Malachi was tied for the top, and just nobody was catching any because they weren't throwing any. They had nearly as many interceptions as passing touchdowns. But the one thing that I do want to add about Malachi Dupree is when I watch him, I feel like I'm watching Justin Hunter Part 2. That's right. And I also have a question for you. Uh Uh-oh. 
If you were a dynamic weapon in the passing game, if the offensive coordinator looks at his weapons, looks at what he has at his disposal, and he sees a special talent in Malachi Dupree, wouldn't you think he would call more pass plays? Wouldn't you think they would find a way to get him the ball more frequently? Isn't there a chicken and the egg dilemma here with Malachi Dupree and his dominator rating? I think so. But again, the one thing that makes it really hard to to side with that is that you had Darius Geis, you had Leonard Fournette, you had this great backfield. But no, I agree. You love to do this. You love to just keep reciting the same players. Tell us again how many passes their quarterback threw. Well, Danny Etling. I mean, tell us again who their running backs are again. Gee, I don't know who this Leonard Fournette is. Please explain to me who their running backs were. Please enlighten me, Nate. There are just some offenses. Like you said, this is not a prolific offense. So maybe. Maybe they were not confident in their quarterback to throw the ball to Malachi Dupree, but the problem is Malachi Dupree. This is the excuse making that you always hear around these five-star high school prospects. Then they go ahead and get drafted three rounds too early because NFL scouts were rationalizing away their underwhelming college resumes, and then they become Justin Hunter at the next level, just like you said earlier. Do you want to move on to the next wide receiver? I feel like Yes, I do. If you draft Malachi Dupree in your Dynasty League rookie draft, you don't know what the fuck you're doing. Oh, God. I just can't. There's going to be one listener whose hand's going to be shaking over the top of their mouse as they're comparing Malachi Dupree to whoever's available, and they just don't want to click him anymore because of that one dagger you just dropped. That's fine. Just do yourself a favor and don't draft him. It's easy. Just avoid the guy that didn't do anything last year. How hard is that? It's not that hard, I guess. All right, let's move on, Matt. Let's move on to another bigger receiver, I guess I should say. Let's talk about Amara Darbo. I really don't want to talk about this guy. No? Is there anything about his profile that you find in any way interesting? Uh, I didn't think he was a great athlete when I watched him, and that kind of killed me because every time I watch Michigan now, I picture Devin Funchess, and I just I didn't see Devin Funchess athletically for a guy that's 6'2", 215. The one thing that I did see, though, is a guy that can make every single catch. It doesn't matter if it's a jump ball, if he's diving, if there's a defender in front of him, behind him, on him. He he literally does make every catch, which is pretty unbelievable when you watch him. He got a ton of buzz in the senior bowl, and I kind of feel like... <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, sorry. My forehead just hit the microphone. What happened? I blacked out. I think I felt like I was just watching the OJ documentary. I just want to say that when I look at his numbers, I kind of feel like we're going through the Michael Thomas thing again. This is a guy that played at a major school. Oh, come on. I'm not saying he's going to be as good as Michael Thomas, but if we're writing him off based on counting stats, then that's not a great thing to do because he did produce a little bit here. 58 receptions uh, two years ago, 57 this year, 862 receiving yards, seven touchdowns. So he was a viable part of this offense at a big school. But again, when I watch him, he's not overly impressive. He, he That's why he's in our list of guys that are potentially overrated. I think he is. The one thing that I think is fantastic about him, though, is his ability to make catches no matter where he is. The guy's a great receiver, but he doesn't have all the tools to be a elite receiver. He could be a good third receiver potentially. He could be a guy that comes in and spells for people. I don't think he's going to be a hit, and I don't even know where you're drafting him in your dynasty draft. He might be the end of the second, middle of the third. The reason we're talking about these players is these are the players that many of the major sports media outlets have ranked in their top 10 wide receiver prospects. Amara Darbo has a round two grade from a lot of different scouting services. 
and I don't understand the fascination. How can you have Darbo ranked ahead of Juju Smith-Schuster, Isaiah Ford, Chris Godwin, Taewon Taylor, Carlos Henderson? Makes no sense. Just like I see Chad Hansen ranked ahead of a lot of these wide receivers. Chad Hansen is supposed to be drafted in the third round. He's getting a third round draft grade by a lot of scouting services, and I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. That's why we're talking about these guys today. I don't get it. We've talked about the guys you should be getting in the last few episodes of this show. This episode is a lot about the guys you should just avoid. Just don't draft them. doesn't matter what slot you're at and what round you're at in your dynasty rookie draft. Just don't draft these guys. And if you don't like any of the wide receivers that are available, just draft a running back. Just avoid these likely busts because this is how these wasted picks happen. The reason why dynasty rookie draft pick hit rates are so low in the second, third, and fourth rounds is because you have these dynasty league enthusiasts drafting these wide receivers that have close to zero potential to being fantasy viable at the next level, and they're just drafting them anyway based on what these scouting services are saying, and these scouting services don't know what the fuck to look at when evaluating prospects. You you don't want to hear what I heard about Chad Hansen then after you just went on that. Go ahead. What is the fascination with Chad Hansen? Right, Hansen. So he got a... What a terrible name, by the way. At least Malachi Dupree has a cool name. At least Dede Westbrook has a cool name. At least Amara Darbo has a cool name. Chad Hansen? Get the fuck out of here, Chad Hansen. I think he's actually related to the Hansons. That's what I heard earlier today. The douche name. Okay, that's not what I heard. Anyways, this is really going to irk you because it was a one-for-one white receiver for white receiver comparison. I'm shocked that he's a white receiver. Just shocked. This is news to me. I couldn't believe Some people... This, the knowledge that Chad Hansen is a white receiver. Stunning. So we talked about this last week. Chad Hansen's the guy that was getting a lot of buzz at the Senior Bowl, similar to Amara I Darbo. I don't care. I don't care. Hold I on. don't care. He's Jared Arborderis. We're Hold moving on. on. I don't want to hear it. Hold on. No, it wasn't Jared Arborderis. It was worse than that. It was... No, I'm saying he's Jared well, Arborderis. He's being called Eric he's Decker. He's irrelevant. He's not going to be anything. Who the fuck said he's Eric Decker? Who said that? <laughs> who said it? Tell me who said it. I don't it. remember their name. What pea-brained primate said that Chad Hansen is Eric fucking Decker? This is making me very angry. I've said the F word more in the last five minutes than I have at any point in time in the history of this show. Because seeing these draft grades on these bad receivers and then hearing these ridiculous comps, it makes me insane. I don't want to, uh... Who said it? Who said it? Who compared... Chad Hansen to like Eric Decker. Just Liam needs some kicking in the door looking for this guy. Who said it? I heard it on a podcast. They didn't say the guy's name. What podcast? What podcast? Uh, Saturday to Sunday, Sunday to Saturday. I don't know what the podcast is called. Why are you caping up for these podcasters that don't know what the hell they're talking about? Here's the thing, though. I just want to say it's true. Chad Hansen, last year, if you're looking at his production, he was buried on the depth chart, Matt. I don't care. Jared Arborderis. Next. Man, we're just we're just nuking these guys. All right, fine. You mentioned his name. By the way, I know it's not Arborderis. That's a joke. I referred to him as Arborderis last year. Many people on YouTube criticized me. I know his name's Jared Abraderis. I know that like Abracadabra. I get it. But it's fun to call him Arborderis to piss off people in Wisconsin that have much of their identity tied to the Green Bay Packers and the correct pronunciation of all the players on the Green Bay Packers roster. Trolling you people. Get a life. 
Don't draft Chad Hansen. Okay, you brought this guy up a minute ago. Let's talk about Chris Godwin. Are you ready to talk about him? I love Chris Godwin. So yes, I'm prepared to talk about him. I like him. He's essentially a lesser version of Juju Smith-Schuster. All the things we like about Juju Smith-Schuster are present with Chris Godwin. Exceptional sophomore season, early breakout age. Then wasn't as productive in his junior year. Still came out early. So we like the younger players that are coming out early. They're more precocious. But Chris Godwin... 11 touchdowns last year. Didn't reach 1,000 yards like he did in his sophomore year, but still 11 touchdowns. Very promising receiver. I also like the fact that he's 6'1", 205, because on Pro Football Reference, what you'll often see happen is that players will check in at the combine an inch or two shorter, but 5 to 10 pounds heavier. So Chris Godwin could be 6'2", 210, and those are interesting measurables. You have that age-adjusted production and those kind of measurables in terms of his stature. If he can somehow flash some burst and agility, woof, I'd be very excited about Chris Godwin. Another great name. God in his last name. Who wouldn't want God in their last name? God and Win put together. God and Win. Oh, my God. Woo! That's a win. That's a Woo! win. All right. Chris Godwin for the win. My God. All right. When I watched him, um, I thought he did a good job of uh, cutting angles when he notices defenders are in a good position. Used his body well on contested catches. Does good head and shoulder fakes against coverage. The other thing is he's not afraid to work over the middle of the field, and that's where I think he might really have to make his money in the NFL. He, he, He really did seem like a tough fearless competitor. A lot of tacklers bounced off of him. And like you said, when you compared him to Juju, that size, that fight, that's great because you've got to be a denser player if you want to survive going through the middle of the field. The one thing, honestly, though, when I watched him is that I didn't get the impression that he was one of the most explosive players in the class. He's not. He's not. He's Rashard Matthews, and that's fine. He's Rashard Matthews. Rashard Matthews is a prototypical NFL flanker. That's what Chris Godwin is, especially if he can check in at 210 be a great run blocker and be excellent out of that flanker position and be the target leader for a team in a couple of years. You can absolutely see that in Chris Godwin's range of outcomes. And another guy that reminds me a lot of Chris Godwin, Isaiah Ford. Isaiah Ford is essentially Chris Godwin, but he's going to check in at 6'1", 200, whereas I think Chris Godwin could potentially check in at 6'2", 10. So again, very similar players. This is an NFL flanker prototype, players that excelled as sophomores and came out early. This is what we're looking for. Now the question is, can Ford and Godwin test well at the NFL Combine and be very interested in watching their drills? How about you? Uh, Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think Isaiah Ford's a guy that doesn't get enough notice. Um, He's good. He is good. And, you know, I've heard people think that he's going to test really well. Um, When you watch him, it seems like he is a really good athlete. He's good. If you look at his sophomore season, junior season, very good. 75 plus receptions both years, 1000 plus receiving yards. I know that he's good. These are the these are the type of statistics. He's good. That jump out to you, Matt that he had 11 touchdowns last year, seven this year. Virginia Tech plays, you know, a, a tough schedule. And to see this type of... Tough schedule? Who do they play? It's pulled up. You don't even know who they play? You're just saying that? Just to say it? You just say the thing just to say it? You don't even know? You're just saying it as like a cookie-cutter template thing to say? Oh, these guys, uh, they play a tough schedule. No, I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but I know he had tough games. So that why would you say that? Because I didn't figure you were going to ask me on the spot... 
How do you know their schedule? How do you know? What do you mean, how do I know? I've looked at the game logs. Do you know who they played out of conference? Did they play a difficult schedule out of conference? Or was it all Division II schools out of conference? I was looking at game logs. And I was looking back at who they played. And you're asking me why I don't know who they played. But yeah, Tennessee, Syracuse. Liberty. No. Georgia Tech, Virginia, Clemson, Arkansas. I mean, they played tough teams. These aren't pushover teams. Well, you're going to bring up, yeah, you're going to bring up Duke and you're going to bring up, yeah, play Boston College, Pitt. Come on, man. Miami, Pittsburgh, Georgia Tech, Notre Dame, Virginia, Clemson, Arkansas. These are not low-level defenses. All right, thank you. I didn't. You're right. Well, you called me out. I didn't have it in front of me. But it was great because you just say the thing that you think you can just say the template response, you know, the cookie cutter. jeez. Oh, gas bag thing oh, to say geez. when you're breaking down a player and i'm not gonna let that happen you need to come with facts you need to have the information in front of you you can't just say something without having it verified otherwise you're gil garcetti you don't know what the fuck you're doing you're just hey we got this i had already looked at the game logs before i just didn't have them in front of me so when you asked me to spout off specific games we've already you didn't remember they played clemson i mean that would have been a nice one to pull forgot to throw liberty out there i wasn't ready but they did play liberty <laughs> they did play he didn't crush them he crushed Liberty. 11 receptions for 117 yards. Most of his receptions that year were against Liberty. Oh, pretty good game. Pretty good game. I remember it very fondly. Okay, let's move on to one last receiver that we have in this group. Carlos Henderson, I have him at number four overall in this draft class. Oh! He's way up there. Way up there. Wait, who do you have at number two? I have Mike Williams, number two, yes. obviously. Good, thank you. There was a fear. Cooler heads prevail. There was a fear that if I was to put him at number three, the show would just sink <laughs> into the earth. That's ridiculous. So anyways, um, Carlos Henderson is honestly a pretty special talent um, when you watch him play. I know he didn't get a lot of buzz because he played for Louisiana Tech, but he's projected to run in the four threes. For a guy of his size, we're talking 5'11", 191. So by your estimations on this, I'll probably check in at about 5'10", 195, 200, which would be pretty solid for Carlos Henderson, especially if he's going to run in the four threes or very low four fours. He may be one of the most explosive athletes in this entire class, especially after the catch. One of the best sets of feet in and out of breaks in the class and has a solid ability to get down and transition in and out of his routes effortlessly at full speed. I mean, honestly, when you watch this guy, the amount of tackles that he breaks, it's, it's the same reason that I really love Juju Smith and what we talked about with Chris Godwin, it's that fight, and you don't see it often enough with receivers. Sometimes they seem a bit passive, but these three guys in particular, and absolutely Carlos Henderson, is a fighter from the minute that he releases at the line of scrimmage to the second that the ball is in his hands, the guy's a fighter. And one other thing that's really special about him is how elite of a kick returner he is. He finished with 32.2 yards per return this year, which was number four in the nation. And he finished number two in the nation in kick return touchdowns. And you've seen a lot of studies that guys that had running back statistics and guys that were elite kick returners, oftentimes we correlate that with premier or uh, you know high upside open field vision. And it's pretty evident when you watch Carlos Henderson play, 
Ideally, I'd like him to add a little size. I mean, you know, you have him at 195. It'd be nice to see him at 205, 210, but that's getting a bit heavy at 5'11". He runs good routes, sometimes runs them inconsistently, but I think the bottom line with Carlos Henderson is dangerous player with the ball in his hands, and I expect him to go no later in the NFL draft than the second round. What? Wow. No later. We had John Moore on the Roto Underworld radio show last year. He's a writer for Rotoviz. And he talked about the value of special teams play. And the players like a Tyreek Hill that excel in special teams, that that's a positive indicator for their NFL potential. Antonio Brown, excellent special teams player at Central Michigan. You mentioned Randall Cobb earlier, an excellent special teams player at Kentucky. This is Carlos Henderson. This is a guy who's a stud number one wide receiver that's volunteering to return punts and return kicks, and he's doing it incredibly well. Across the board, look at the profile. College dominator, 40%, 78th percentile. Now, it could have been higher, but Louisiana Tech ran a prolific pass attack. So 1,500 yards, 19 touchdowns only came out to a 78th percentile college dominator. So I give Carlos Henderson even more benefit of the doubt on top of that dominator because his counting stats were so incredible. He was just so prolific. So same reason I liked Roger Lewis last year coming out of Bowling Green. Great dominator and prolific in an up-tempo, high-octane offense. Carlos Henderson, unlike Roger Lewis, much better athlete, evidenced by that 18.7 college yards per reception. So he's a big play threat, and he's commanding a significant target share. I mean, 82 receptions for 1,500-plus yards, and somehow, someway, 19 touchdowns. This guy reminds me of Malcolm Mitchell. I think that he's this draft class's Malcolm Mitchell. He's going to go in the third or fourth round, but as you said, he should go in the second round. This is a guy that needs to be drafted ahead of guys like John Ross and D.D. Westbrook, but he won't because he went to Louisiana Tech and he's not going to be as fast as those players are at the Combine, and that's a crime. It should be Chad Hansen douche nozzle. I'm now considering it because I thought I had it, and now that you brought up Chad Hansen douche nozzle, I like that better. So yes, I'm fine manufacturing a show around dismissing Amara Darbo. It was a pretty important event in the history of the United States, race relations in this country. Anything for us, Nate? Whoa, that's whoa, that's whoa, that's. Chris Godwin for the win. My God. And Dynasty League enthusiasts will be drafting him ahead of Juju Smith-Schuster. And that is when we strike! I see a lot of the same traits, the same qualities in Isaiah Burst that I see in Chris Godwin. Do you like Isaiah Burst? 
Are you talking about Isaiah Burst that's in the NFL right now? Well, I haven't watched anything on Isaiah Burst. No, I haven't had any time on Burst. My bad. If that ever makes it out that I was calling Isaiah Ford, Isaiah Burst, that would be, oh my God. Top schedule? Who do they play? Hold up. You don't even know who they play? You're just saying that? Just to say it? You just say the thing just to say it? You don't even know? You guys not even going to talk about sleeper running backs? Did you guys forget that? And that there's little knobs on our back and you can computerize and set our settings and configure us to be exactly the correct percentage of wide receiver. What the fuck is wrong with you guys? You were too mean to Nate List. We need 5% more empathy. We need 7% more rookie running backs. We need 8% less rookie wide receivers. We want 10% less cursing. Like, you don't have that level of control of the podcast. It's fucking free! Let's have some sloppy seconds. This episode is going to be like anal sex with a significantly less attractive woman. We're cutting that out. That was rude. Why would you say that? How's that rude? Is this, is this me getting lectured? Why would you say that? You're so heavy-handed with these references. Oh my god. It's about innuendo. And it's about dropping it when people don't expect it. We did the whole anal reference in the second show. This is just gratuitous. You're so heavy-handed with this. It's gross. Mmm. Mmm. Oh. Malachi Dupree, chicken in the egg. I have some friends that I talk to on Twitter all the time that I really respect that have Malachi Dupree in their top five. some water there was no five-star prospects last year none Corey coleman was the closest but he's small so not five stars mm. Mm. Oh. without the college dominator malachi dupree would be fucked mm. Mm. Oh. you're not listening to me no i was listening i was trying to i was trying to click on something right at the last part you were calling me and texting me and emailing me and tweeting me about Carlos Henderson all week, and now you're asking me if you want to skip Carlos Henderson? What the fuck is wrong with you, man? You're a masochist? They're big fans. People just have all weekend to just stroke it to it. I'm asking you this seriously. This is not a bit for the show. Do you think that people masturbate listening to us talk about fucking fantasy football? Why would you say that? Well, if they do, I'm going to do my best. Howard Stern. The fact that those neurons would fire in your brain, that people would somehow be stroking it to us. How those words tumble from your lips, I will never know. I don't know what it's like to be in your shoes. I need to turn up my empathy. Mm. Mm. Oh. Whoa, that's... Whoa, that's... Whoa, that's... This, in the real world, no one masturbates to fantasy football podcasts ever it never happens so just know that just know that you're delusional mm. Mm. Oh. whoa that's whoa that's whoa that's you're gil garcetti